Hello, folks. This is Steve Adubato. This is, in fact, the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour. Everything you wanted or needed to know about leadership, about being an entrepreneur, about uh, running a bank. By the way, we're going to be talking about our good friend, talking to our good friend Ira Roberts, who is, in fact, the president and CEO of Valley National Bank in just a minute or so. But if you're an entrepreneur, you want to be an entrepreneur, you're a middle manager, you're someone who wants to move up, you're someone who just got the job and you're struggling and dealing with and trying to figure out how to be the best leader you can be. I spent about two years writing a book called Lessons in Leadership with my colleague who is with me here on the radio show on AM 970, as well as our podcast, Mary Gamba. I am here. Good to see you again. Good to be with you. By the way, we're on video as well, so that's why we're, we have a little makeup on. I, mean, I do. You don't. Oh. <laughs> um, I need it. You don't. But um, before we bring Iron, I just want to do this. I want to remind folks that you can write to us. Go to our website, stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Adubato, A-D-U-B-A-T-O. And Facebook, Mary, how do people get us? On Facebook, Steve Adubato, Ph.D. And folks listening to us on AM 970, we appreciate you being with us uh, every Sunday that we are doing the show. And one of the things Mary and I do is not just talk about leadership and the lessons we've learned in my executive coaching and leadership development, but talk to great leaders, leaders who are on the front lines, leaders who do it every day. And in fact, our good friend Ira Robbins, who is the president and chief executive officer of Valley National Bank, is on the line. How are you doing, Ira? Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me today. Great having you. By the way, uh, by way of background, Ira, you are one of the youngest bank CEOs in the nation question. When you got into banking, was it your plan to become the leader, the CEO? I don't believe that was my direct plan. But, you know, go back to your original comment. It's funny. You know, age defines to many of us how experienced somebody is. And, you know, I think as an effective leader, that's something we really need to back away from and begin to look at the character traits of individuals uh, that we hire, uh, that we groom, what type of training we, we provide to them. And, and that really, in my mind, defines what effective leaders should look like. But, uh, I do get it from a lot of people. You know, I don't have the typical grades that somebody has sitting in this chair. You know, it's so interesting that Ira goes right to that. He's always candid. And I have disclosed, I, I stand and deliver our leadership development company has been working with Valley National. There's a leadership academy uh, that we run there, the Valley National Stand and Deliver Leadership Academy. And Ira and I have been talking about leadership and communication for about 10 years. So here's the question, Ira. This whole age thing is not really the issue, but my question for you is this. Valley National had a longtime leader before you took over, uh, Jerry Lipkin, and you were uh, a mentee to Jerry. Jerry is a great friend of both of ours. But how much pressure was there on you and has there been on you because people expected you on some level to step up and be the leader, to be awfully candid? And, and I think it's a good question. I, I hear people today say, Ira, you're doing one thing's one way or one thing or another way purely to differentiate yourself from Jerry, which obviously is not something I would, I would want to do. You know, people give guidance for a reason, and it's a connection in part to the past as to what's happened. And if we're not listening to that guidance, then we're not doing an effective job as leaders within, on, within our organizations. You know, I, I think Jerry provided a wonderful foundation for me internally to grow up throughout the bank, provided external resources, which is important uh, to many of us as to how we grow and develop. Mm. You know, but I think as leaders, it's important for us to really define succession as a leadership brand. You know, how do we sit there and become effective CEOs within our own organization is by developing a leadership brand to have succession that's not just us, not just at the one level below, but throughout the entire organization. 
And one of the things I think I'm most proud of that we've been done to effectively do is to work with organizations such as yourselves and some other ones is to really drive leadership down, not just promotions because somebody knows what he or she is effectively doing from a job perspective, but what does our true leadership traits and making sure that our people have that throughout the entire organization. How do you do that? Sorry for interrupting. How do you drive, quote your words, how do you drive leadership down, whether it's at Valley National or any other place? How do you do that? It's consistency and it's communication. You know, I think for me specifically, there's certain attributes that I have that, you know, I think make an effective leader. You know, for me, I think being honest, being authentic, ethical, humble, sincere in how I communicate with my employees, with my stakeholders across all spectrums of, of what I attempt to do, sort of the, the core values of who I am. You know, it's important for me to make sure that we're communicating that throughout the entire organization, that those are the values that we should be developing. And, and as a leader, making sure that's my brand, it's important to make sure that the staff, once again, all the stakeholders that I come into contact with have those same attributes and understand the clear vision of, of the organization. So it's one thing for me to have these character traits, but it's another thing for me to be able to effectively communicate that. Communicating isn't just getting up on a stage and speaking to people, mm. but it's communicating it by hiring you know, organizations such as yourself to come work with us, that they're, that my employees understand that I'm invested in their success as well. And, and, and if it just becomes lip service, then that's not going to be effective. But succession, having a leadership brand, showing that, you know, speaking to those things, hiring people to support it, that's really what, what becomes effective. I'm going to follow up on this point, Ira. And by the way, if you're listening to us, this is the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour on AM 970, just about the best radio station around. And you'll also check us out on the podcast a little bit later. Um, I'm here with my colleague, Mary Gamba. We are, in fact, listening to... Ira Robbins, president and CEO of Valley National Bank. Um, Ira, here's the other part of it. You are leading an effort to, quote, change culture, improve it. I shouldn't just change it. And here's what I'm trying to get to. There have been people who have been let go. There have been people who may not be prepared to live up to the standards that you expect and your colleagues expect. Jim Collins wrote this wonderful book, as you well know, good to great. And he says CEOs, leaders are like the bus driver, and not everyone can have a seat on the bus, 50 seats, premium seats. Sometimes the bus driver has to, quote, escort people off the bus at the next station because they're not up to the job. How do you deal with that part? I think right off the bat, you being honest and transparent in the communication you have and, and having difficult conversations. Uh, you know, no one wants to sit there and, and fire anyone by any means, and then no one wants to sit there and have a hard conversation identifying this is what needs to be improved within his or her work, uh, or, or making sure that there's an alignment on strategy. But if you're not having those conversations, then you're doing yourself a disservice, you're doing the company a disservice, and you're doing that employee a significant disservice as well. And one of the hardest things we've had to do in our organization is to say this was the vision, this was the direction of Valley National Bank. Now, we want to maintain the values, the culture, to a degree as to who we are, but we also want to achieve something a little bit different, communicating that strategy and making sure we have the right people on board to implement that strategy becomes important. And if we're not going ahead and making the right decisions, having the right conversations with our executive team Mm. to make sure that they are the ones that can execute the change that's required, then we're never going to achieve what the message that we're trying to communicate. So being direct in those conversations right up front uh, become most important, making sure that you have the effective leadership team surrounding you 
to execute and, and to implement what you're attempting to deliver as well becomes really important. And when you decide that you don't have those people surrounding you, being swift and making a decision. And, and you, know, you know what? Some of the decisions may not be correct, but at least you're making a decision. Indecisiveness, unfortunately, is a decision in itself. And hmm. in my opinion, most likely leads to the wrong decision. Ira, one of the things I've known about you over the years, and Mary has said this to me offline as well, because Mary, as, as, as folks are listening to the Leadership Hour, Mary runs our company, uh, Stand and Deliver, our leadership uh, and communication executive coaching um, and development company. We do seminars all across the region and the nation. She's often said about you, Ira, that Ira's one of the most decent, honest people we've ever worked with. And there's a point to this, trust me. You're also considered a, quote, nice guy by a lot of people. Becoming CEO, becoming president, being the person who ultimately is responsible, do you care at all if in the process of making these very, very tough decisions and sometimes telling people what they don't want to hear causes people to no longer think that I was such, quote, a nice guy? Obviously, I mean, I think you don't have a heart if you don't have empathy. If, if you don't have, uh, you know, a balance as to who and what you are, then I'd, I'd be dismayed if it didn't impact you. You know, I think for me, uh, you know, it is important not to be the most well-liked individual in the room, but to be respectful in how I treat every individual. And I, and I make sure when I hire somebody, if he or she doesn't feel as if they have the ability to implement change throughout then I'm going to limit as to what they can do. But one of the most important things I do when we hire a new individual, you have the ability to make changes within your department. But if you're not going to do it respectfully, if you're not going to be, do it candidly and transparent, then we're not going to hire you. So, you know, the respect piece across all organizations becomes really important. And for me, if we don't have respect, we don't have that culture that drives respect across all individuals to treat people as human beings. Um, and that's not someone that fits into what Valley National Bank should be looking for. And still hit the numbers. Still have the right bottom line with all the empathy and compassion you're talking about? I believe it's achievable. I think you need to be driven and, and clear as to what you want to achieve. Make sure you've messaged and communicated that to your employees. But I think you can do it respectfully. And, and I think your employees, especially as we move forward working with millennials, I, I think that they would work for you harder. And I think you'll actually achieve better results. Yeah. I don't believe in the old adage that you need to be real hard on 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 driving and and, and distant from your employees. You know, yeah. I, I Mary think as long as they understand where you're going, I think you'll be okay. I was sorry for jumping, Mary. I know I know you want to ask about millennials. Oh, absolutely, and it's <laughs> he opened up the Pandora's box. <laughs> millennials <laughs> and leadership. <laughs> it's going to be the Steve Adubato's leadership few hours as we're talking about millennials. Uh, but yeah, Ira, you were talking really about culture and being human and empathizing with the people on your team. How do you handle those? young adults and millennials, everyone argues the age range, but we know that that 20s, early 30s, how do you handle, it seems to be a new mindset. We have a lot of young, talented producers in our organization. And I love to say we got very lucky because they, are, lucky. they are terrific. However, are they the norm though? That's the question. And if they're not, how do you deal with that? Because oftentimes you can't see through that in a job interview. And I think it's a challenge for everyone. But you know, one of the things I like to talk about it as honesty. And what you're saying has to be effectuated by what you're actually doing. And one of the things we did here recently is change our mobile workforce policy. And the reason we never had one before, quite candidly, was we didn't trust the employees to work when they were home or trust the employees to work when they're not having the supervision of being in our specific building. Well, I'm going to talk about honesty. I'm going to talk about candor. And how do I not provide more of a mobile workforce? And I think things like that begin to drive the millennials 
if it's not just what you're saying, but it's what they're seeing that you're doing, I believe that then creates a, an atmosphere that a millennial will really want to work in. I think understanding and connecting with the millennial becomes much more important. Uh, you know, communication is all about connecting, making sure that, you know, you like to say, see the message that you're sending is the message that's being delivered as well. And the, the message, message is being received, received, you mean. Right. The, the message, message you're delivering received. is the one you receive, right. which right. isn't not easy. And, but you have to tailor that message, right, to each individual and, and knowing your audience when you go in and making sure that you're delivering that appropriate message to them that's resonating with them becomes of most importance. And I think for millennials, it's probably more so than anyone else before because they care. And, and when you have an individual that cares, in my mind, you have the ability to generate a superior product. So you, it's just connecting with that individual that becomes more of a focus and, and much more of of an emphasis as to what a leader needs to needs to do. But I think ultimately you're going to get a much better product. As we um, say goodbye to our friend Ira uh, Robbins, who is in fact the president and CEO of Valley National Bank, I just want to follow up on something. Ira, let me ask you this. Uh, me, you, Mary, we talk a lot about our children, our families, and balancing it all. Could you tell folks, as you are the president and CEO of Valley National Bank, which, by the way, let folks know where the footprint is, and then I'll go back to your family. So Valley is a $30 billion bank with a footprint in northern New Jersey, New York City, the boroughs, Long Island, all of Florida, and a little bit in Alabama as well. So back to your family. Kids, how many? Ages? Four. I have a six-month-old, four, <laughs> actually five years old today, uh, six-year-old, and an eight-year-old as well. That was okay. a loaded question because you know how many children. <laughs> okay. He's got six, eight, five, and a six-month-old. So, Ira, i got to ask you, leadership in the household, are you the leader in your home? I'm married well, let's just say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's something me, you, and Mary have in common. Um, yeah, your wife. My what? wife is amazing. And, and look, I, I think in every great leader, there's always a supportive family that's surrounding them. I think uh, for us, you know, having children was very important for us, making sure that we leave this world a better place than where we found it uh, gets accentuated by the children that you have and, and the values that you create upon them. And my wife does an amazing job in balancing that and making sure that I have the ability to lead what I need to do professionally, which provides pleasure to me. And, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, she's able to effectively do what she needs to do. But there's no way in my mind that I could do what I want to do here with the organization without having a wonderful wife. And my wife, Esther, is fantastic. That was very good to drop in her name right there. I was about to ask what your wife's name is. So that was, that was really good. And, and really by the good. way, I, I've spent some time with Esther and I were together. Esther is strong. She's a leader. She clearly knows how to communicate what she wants to say. And I will say this, Ira has married well, and they're a great partnership. Do we have time for one more question for quick, Ira? Great. Just a quick, quick question. So you said the work-life balance. How do you manage that work-life balance, <sighs> He goes Ira? to a lot of games, I'll tell you that. I, well, that's, I'm still trying to figure out how. I'm still trying to figure it out, and I think there's a lot of professionals out there listening that are also trying to figure it out. So how do you manage that and not turning it off but turning it off at the end of the day? I, I don't think I do it wonderful compared to everyone, but I think life's a pie. You only have so many slices for everything, and you got to make sure that each piece of it has a, a little bit. You know, for me, the most important, my family, my wife, and my kids, that's the largest piece of my pie. The work piece becomes equally important. There's 3,500 employees at Valley. We have over 500,000 customers that rely on us, the communities that rely on us to provide value to each individual area. You know, unfortunately, I think my pie probably is the one that tastes a little bit less than what it needs to. But my wife does a good job of making sure that there's always a little bit for me left, that, that making sure that for me to be effective and what would I do that I need to maintain a little bit of that balance. So once again, I think it goes back to having a wonderful partner. 
Well said. Uh, that was Ira Robbins, president and CEO of Valley National Bank, one of our, frankly, one of our terrific clients at Stand and Deliver who, who allows us, Ira and his team allows us to come in, do leadership exe- uh, leadership coaching, uh, seminars, workshops, et cetera, et cetera. You're a great partner, and you've been a great guest on the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour. Ira, I want to thank you so much, buddy. All the best. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mary. Thank, thank you, Ira. Thank you, Steve. You know, he Ira said so many interesting things. You said something. By the way, uh, Steve Adubato here with Mary Gamba, listening to uh, us on AM 970. Also will be a follow-up podcast on this. You you asked him about turning it off. Mm-hmm. And in my notes, I, w- I had this. I was like, I want to talk to Mary about how great leaders, truly great leaders, mm-hmm. do they, can they really, quote, turn it off? Or is it a 24-7 job? That's why I wanted to ask that question. I wanted to hear from other leaders. And I think going through and as we interview and talk to a lot more people, getting the advice on that, I think that is the equation that every person who juggles family, children, sports, work, tries to find that balance. And for me, I've learned that if I don't turn it off, I'm less stressed. What I mean by that is if I am so worried that at 5 o'clock on a Friday, I'm not going to check my email, I'm more stressed than, hey, the email's still going to be there. When I'm done doing everything later on this evening, I'll take another quick look. Not to go through emails that could wait until Monday, but at least to know if there is something that I need to address right away. But it is that balance because especially when your kids are younger, you don't want to take that time away from the family. So here's the follow-up. And by the way, uh, for those of you who are struggling with the whole question of the work-life balance, I got to tell you, I think it looks great or sounds great on paper, but there are not enough hours in the day. Our kids, our families, our parents, the people in our lives, our friends, our social life, combined with the pressures of leading an organization, leading a team, I think it's easier said than done. And I, 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 I'm sorry for interrupting. Ira said he doesn't do it particularly well. Or I don't think I do it well. I don't think, um, I think sometimes leading for me, working for me, obsessing over where we are with this or that. And sen- Mary, could you let folks know in all candor the times I, Brian's here as well. Uh, I send emails out, at, can we call it non-conventional hours? I would definitely say non-conventional hours, 3.30 in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. And it's important to, if you wake up in the middle of the night or if you hadn't even gone to sleep yet, if you have a thought, you could jot it down. Or if you do send an email, you say, obviously, you don't need to address this till the morning. Well, tell folks I don't. Hold on, Brian, you're in the studio as well. You don't have a mic, but... Come on. I don't ask for people to respond then. Never, never. And I think that's the difference. We talk about it all the time that the greatest leaders never really turn off. It's a 24-7 job. Your mind is always thinking of what else could I be doing? Should I be doing? And oh, I, sorry. For, yeah. Is it a job or is it a way of life? Leadership? Yeah. See, you called it a job. I don't see it as a job. I see being a leader as a way of life. That's very interesting. I don't see it as a job because a job is a thing you go to, you're at, you do it, mm-hmm. and then you go to something else. I actually don't be, I don't believe that being a really committed, excellent, superior leader is a job. I believe it is, in fact, a way of life. 
I believe you have your next book's title right there. <laughs> you, you don't buy it as a no, way of life? No, no. I, I think it is a way of life. And I think that you and I are just explaining leadership in a different way because you were just saying that as a parent, sometimes you feel like maybe you're not as good as a leader as a parent, if you will. Well, I know I have less influence at home, but that's another story. Exactly. So I think we are saying the same thing, that yes, leadership itself, in and of itself, I want to be, though, a leader at home at times where I do turn off work and I can't think about work because it's not fair. Oh, that's fair. Um, so that's what I'm saying when I say that, yes, it's, it, it is a 24-7 job to mm -hmm. be thinking about it. But I do also have my leadership role as a mother and as a wife as well. Well, I'm also talking about this, and I'm not going to turn this into a marriage counseling or a marriage. It could be uh, fun if we did. Well, I'll tell you what. My wife, Jennifer, I mean, Ira was going on and on about Esther, which now makes me feel the pressure to say how great my <laughs> wife, Jennifer, is, because it's true. And your husband, Bill, is a great partner as well. Yes, he is. But I am fascinated by... If you're the leader of a company, in our case, two organizations, the Caucus Educational Corporation, our not-for-profit production company that we produce programming for, by the way, the second half hour of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour will be State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, in which we interview a whole range of leaders in government, education, business, et cetera, et cetera. But I will say this, and, and stand and deliver. You're the leader of those companies. You're the CEO. That doesn't mean you're the dictator, and you know well better than anyone, it doesn't mean that everything I say goes. Correct. Okay? Correct. It is even harder if you're the co-CEO, co-leader at home with a partner who is strong, confident, believes that her way in many cases makes more sense than yours. It is very hard for me sometimes to realize I ain't making the calls. Exactly. And you need to let your kids know as well that you are not a dictator, that you are sure. Sometimes what I say goes, if it's bedtime and they say five more minutes, it's time for bed. But certain times it is a negotiation, whether you're negotiating in the boardroom or if you're negotiating around a dinner table, it's still negotiation. And How you about want negotiation to with the significant other? By the way, listening folks right now, you know, listening to us on AM 970 and our podcast, mm -hmm. that leadership is also about relationships that sometimes... Even if you care for these people and love them very much, it's not always easy. It's a give and take. And I think that one of our biggest responsibilities as a leader at work and as a leader at home is to teach others to be leaders. And if you just as a parent or a dictator, you're not then Do what I say. Exactly. You're not empowering your children. You're not giving them the tools that they need to become. In my case, I have two young boys, not young anymore, 13 and 16. But you need to give them the tools to become young men and then men who can go out and be independent. By the way, let me disclose. We have I have a 25-year-old son from my first marriage um, who is a talented leader, educator uh, at St. Benedict's Prep in Newark and studying religion and theology for his master's in going on for his doctorate in that field, 15-year-old son, 13-year-old son, and a beautiful 7-year-old little girl, and all of them different, unique, uh, different kinds of personalities, if you will. Um, but I'll say this. They don't sit there and go, oh, my dad has the leadership hour on AM 970. He's written five books on leadership. Let's listen to him. My kids, my kids are going to be tuned in every Sunday at <laughs> 2. I don't know about your kids. My uh, kids are going to be tuned in because I'm going to make them tune in. Our daughter, Olivia, seven uh, this morning, we're, we're taping these programs. She said, Dad, 
I know when the leadership hour is on the radio on AM 970. Do you do it on Sunday? I said, no, we do it on another day. She goes, why are you doing it when I'm in school? Because if you did it at Sunday at 2 o'clock, I could be on with you talking about leadership and kids. Maybe we'll have her call in later to say hello. Yeah, but you won't get a word in it. <laughs> um, real quick, I'm going to bring up this topic. By the way, Ira just texted me. Ira Robbins just texted me that he had so much fun, loved the show, and we're great. And he said Mary should be hosting alone. Oh, that's no, great. Thank you, Ira. He didn't say the last part. Oh. I'm only teasing. I know, but he, he's thinking it. I know he is. Um, confidence. Leadership and confidence. Question. When you're a leader, you're supposed to have something we often call executive presence. You walk in the room, you're in a situation, everyone knows that he or she is the leader. They carry themselves with confidence. Their shoulders are back. They, they never let people see a sweat or like a duck. They never see a paddling, right, underneath mm -hmm. the water. You're calm, right, in theory. Can a really great leader who's supposed to have confidence ever show genuine vulnerability and potential fear about uncertainty or a particular outcome? Or do you fake it with everybody? You didn't expect that question. I didn't, but I love that question. You have to be vulnerable at times in order to be a great leader, in my opinion, and I heard your deep breath, so I think that you may disagree a little bit. I think that confidence is extremely important. I think what Ira had said earlier- Ira Robbins from Valley National Bank, go ahead. Yes, what he had said earlier just about being empathetic and being human if you are a leader and you cannot be perceived as a human being, you will not connect with your team. No matter how great you think you are, you may come off as cocky, arrogant. You need to be human as well as being confident. Yeah, but in all candor, without turning this into a personal uh, therapy session, <clears throat> there have been times with our team, I mean, again, Mary and I, Mary is the day-to-day -day leader. She runs the team every day. I happen to be the CEO of uh, both of our companies. But the truth is we have a talented group of, of people, but we have to make budget. I want to be clear with folks. We have to make budget. We have to raise the money for our television broadcasting. Uh, so we have to raise the money. We have to pay our people. We have to pay pension contributions. We have to pay health care benefits, which recently we had a cut in health benefits, which I had to make that call. And let's put it on the table. I made a decision when I looked at the numbers, that it was necessary to go from what we were contributing to a lesser amount. And I knew people wouldn't like it. I knew people were saying, in some cases, they didn't particularly like me for doing it. But here's my point. I felt vulnerable. I didn't like that I had to do it, and I didn't like that they didn't like it. And I knew they were talking you know, smack about me. And I f felt vulnerable, but I wasn't going to let them see it. Because they need to know that as a leader, I made that call. I'm confident of the call. If they like it, fine. If they don't, they don't. But in reality, that hurt. So, like, people are not supposed to know? I think that, again, this is where sometimes it does come down to men and women in communication. We talk about that a lot. You and I will often have a disagreement in terms of how something, how feedback is given or how we communicate certain things. And I feel sometimes that you can communicate the same exact message, but do it in a more human, personal way. And if that means showing a little bit of your vulnerability, I am okay with that personally as a leader. But I do see your point as well of the fear of that because perception could be that you're weak. 
I don't see it that way. I see it as you opening up yourself makes me realize, hey, you're a human being and this does hurt and it's hurting you to even make this decision. So that makes me a little bit more okay with it. So let's stay on this. Uh, this is not a conversation. It's about it's about leadership. It's about, by the way, Steve Adubato here with Mary Gamba. This is the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour on AM 970. Check us out every Sunday at 2 p.m. and also the podcast uh, as well. You know, I'm not going to make this about Donald Trump, but I for those who like him, one of the things they like about him is that he never shows vulnerability, is that he always appears to be very confident. Um, I don't know what he's really thinking. I know what he's tweeting. I know what he's saying. But here's the question. Do you think most people are looking for a leader who always seems to feel that he or she is right and doesn't apologize? He says, I don't apologize. I apologize all the time because I make a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm thinking to myself, am I, is this bad leadership? Because people are like, hey, if you're screwing up so much, why are you the leader? I think you're confusing confidence and being right and then looping I'm in I'm not the, making this political at all. No, I just want to be clear. No, no. But you brought up Donald Trump. So it's just a question of, yes, he shows that he's confident, but there is a sense of security that we get if our leader – we don't want our leader running around like a chicken with his head cut off if something goes wrong because then we're going to panic. How about so, acknowledging I screwed up, I didn't handle that well? Exactly. B my bad. Exactly. But you could still be confident. That's weak or not? That's not weak. Okay. Do you think most people are okay with leaders saying, I screwed up, my bad, here's what I learned from it? Yes. I you think do. I Even think, in public leaders? Yes. I think that if Donald Trump or any leader for that matter did that a little bit more often, people would appreciate it. Really? It, I do. I do. Because if not, and everyone knows that there was a mistake that was made because we're all human, we all make mistakes, then we're going to think that they're not genuine and that they're not honest. And honesty is an important component to leadership. Well, you know, we've got about two minutes left. Uh, by the way, check out the uh, second half of the Leadership Hour because people are going to hear what uh, show, Mary? State of Affairs with Steve Adubato. Yep, and there's always uh, some interesting guests uh, who are all leaders in government and business and academia and the not-for-profit world talking about a whole range of issues. By the way, that is a New Jersey-centric program. Um, but this first half of the Leadership Hour, which is largely based on my book, Lessons in Leadership, is about, I don't care what state you live in, you know, what you do for a living, it is for everyone. Before I let you out of here and before we uh, check, uh, check off the box for this week, I'm curious about this. One of the things I was thinking about, it's a Pandora's box, strategic micromanaging. Micromanaging gets a bad name. I do micromanage. I always want to know where projects are, but I try to see the big picture. What's the difference between strategic, effective, micromanaging, and, oh, my God, he gave me the assignment. Why doesn't he leave me alone? Brian's laughing, too, as well. Mm -hmm. Brian's like, hey, why is Steve always sending these emails? Like, where are we on this? What's, what's healthy, good leadership micromanaging, and what's just a super pain in the neck? If you are a genuinely good leader, you will make sure your team understands how much information is enough information in terms of checking back in. So as a leader, you don't have to say, where are we with? We always talk about that. So as long as you are doing your job as the employee, letting your leader know where you are, 
then they won't, he or she will not need to micromanage. How about when you don't know? How about when you don't know where we, a leader doesn't know? By the way, when we say leader, don't think just CEO. Think head of a department. Mm -hmm. You're the manager of a company. You're doing whatever. It, it doesn't matter. I don't know where we are with that. There's nothing wrong. Are you saying there's anything wrong with keep asking? I think that if you're doing your job as a leader, as you are, you let our team know internally, and that's what I know is the example, that this is what is expected. If you set the expectations, that's not micromanaging. I want to be really clear on it. Sorry for interrupting. How about this? I always say, and by the way, this is an important leadership tip, and go on our website, stand-deliver.com, because there are a series of articles there, and one of them is about setting expectations. I always say, who's supposed to do what by when? Yes, deadlines are key to any successful organization by far. And without them? Things are going to go awry and you're going to fail. We hopefully did not fail in this particular edition of uh, the Leadership Hour. This is Steve Adubato. I'm here with my colleague. Mary Gamba. And uh, we try to coach, teach, learn about leadership, make mistakes every day at it. But hopefully we're making a difference in our work at Stand and Deliver but more importantly in the Leadership Hour, and hopefully you've enjoyed it. If you have or you haven't or you want us to talk about an issue, tweet me. Is it tweet me? I would, sure. Yeah, tweet me, tweet. at Steve Adubato, A-D-U-B-A-T-O, or go on Facebook. At Steve Adubato, uh, Ph.D., Steve Adubato, Ph.D. And our website is stand-deliver.com. This is Steve Adubato. Mary Gamma is with me, and stay tuned if you're listening on AM 974. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, listening to... Engaging the leaders who matter in our lives every day. See you next week. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. Hello, I'm Dr. Mary Meehan. As a Catholic university, Seton Hall University is committed to supporting educational achievement within our community. That's why we're proud to support the important educational programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at Two Gateway. Funding has been provided by the Northward Center, NJ Best, New Jersey's 529 College Savings Plan. Turn a dream into a degree. St. Joseph's Health. A passion for healing. It's what's inside us. Seton Hall University, where leaders learn. NJM Insurance Group, New Jersey Sharing Network, dedicated to saving lives through organ and tissue donation. And by the New Jersey Office of the Insurance Fraud Prosecutor. Insurance fraud costs New Jersey families $1,300 a year. Welcome to State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato coming to you from the Agnes Varis NJTV studio in Newark, New Jersey. We are pleased to welcome for the first time with us Scott Rutter, president of the board of directors for the New Jersey Canna Business Association, which is? New Jersey Canna Business Association. We are the trade organization representing the cannabis industry in New Jersey. So we're talking marijuana. And as we do this program in the spring of 2018, there's a spirited dialogue going on in the state house here and by the way, how many states in the nation have legalized marijuana? We have eight, including D.C. Difference between? Uh, well, so we have eight that have legalized adult use, and there's about 30 that's also legalized for medical purposes. Including New Jersey? Including New Jersey. So 
Right out of the box, the difference between legalization and decriminalization of marijuana is? Well, when it's decriminalized, it's still crime. So it's still illegal, right? So when you've decriminalized it, you basically said, you're not going to go to jail, but here's a ticket. You haven't actually legalized cannabis. So what you've said is you can actually, the argument is, hey, we're going to de just decriminalize, and therefore we're going to solve some social justice concerns associated with cannabis, right? So it's like? Like you said, you said uh, social justice issues. How is this a social justice issue? So, well, the very premise of cannabis prohibition actually started in the 1930s, and they actually the, the roots of all this deal with great greed and racism. So, if you have that as your fundamental understanding of what cannabis is and what cannabis prohibition means, when we're fast forwarding yeah. to today, 2018, we do know that in New Jersey, for example, black and brown people are, are three times more likely to be arrested for cannabis than a white person. That's even though, based even on though, racism in your mind. That's based on historical racism, for sure. I think that we see a lot of that happening, absolutely. So when we talk about decriminalization, the thought is, well, it's not going to be a crime anymore. You'll just get a parking ticket equivalent. Um, you'll still be able to go to college to get, a, you know, still go to get, get a job and all that kind of thing. It won't ruin your future. The reality is, what we're saying is, it's no longer a crime, but you still got to go talk to the drug dealer. And who knows where that drug you, dealer? You're making it sound like it's promoting street crime in uh, a way that uh, legalization uh, would not. Absolutely exacerbates it. You know, for example, with decriminalization, I still have to deal with a, with a drug dealer to get that cannabis, right? So if I know that cannabis is healthy for me as a medicine or as something that's a better alternative than alcohol or opioids, so I know these things to be true. I know they're medical facts. If I want to, in a decriminalized world, go get that cannabis, which is healthier for me, I still got to deal with the criminals to yeah, do that. Yeah, but Scott, here's my other question on this. You have people like Senator Joe Vitale, the chair of the Senate Health Committee respected mm -hmm. member of the legislature and others. By the way, only a recent telephone poll, if my math is right, only five of 40 members of the New Jersey State Senate said they would be in favor of legalization of marijuana. But one of those who would not is Senator Vitale. Mm -hmm. What do you say to him, who really is an expert in the legislature on health issues, when you're saying the totally opposite no, thing no, no, that he actually, says? No, Senator Vitale, absolutely correct. He's a phenomenal legislator. Uh, a great but he's not in favor of legalization. Well, he's in favor of, he's definitely in favor of medical cannabis. And so it's really, it's really an extension of medical cannabis. But that exists. The, it exists in a very microscopic way New in New Jersey. So in New Jersey, we have five operational dispensaries, soon to be six. And then we're going to hear. For, what, for medical for purposes. For medical purposes, correct. And we're going to also hear uh, very shortly about uh, Governor Murphy's executive order. And he's going to announce this uh, shortly. And What's it going to say? Well, what we expected to say is that, look, you know, the, the access to medical marijuana, medical cannabis, has, has been something that's been held back. And it's been almost intentionally by design by the Christie administration, uh, holding back the expansion of new conditions by not allowing these, the current operators to expand or putting more applications and more licenses on the street. So Governor Murphy recognizes this. We recognize this as an industry. Patient advocates recognize this. So we do expect access to be increased under, under Governor Murphy's, under the medical program. Let's do this. Governor Murphy sat right here in the NJTV studio in Newark, New Jersey. By the way, make sure you check out NJTV News every night on uh, several public television stations, particularly NJTV and WNET. But here's my question. As Governor Murphy, who was then a candidate, sat here and said, one of the reasons he supports legalization of marijuana is because it would bring in significant revenue to the state. Sure. How much and how do we know that? 
Well, we already know that New Jersey has a billion-dollar black market. So that, that we already know that a the illegal illegal sale of marijuana. illegal sale of marijuana in New Jersey is about a billion dollars a year. It already exists. This is already going on. So what we do with adult legalization and what Governor Murphy's been talking about is let's take it out of the hands of drug dealers and drug cartels and put it in the hands of small business owners and also regulate it in a fashion there where we see, like in Colorado, for example, post-regulation, Colorado in 2013 had the highest teenage use of cannabis in the country. They were number one in the nation. Today, they're number seven. It's a downward trend. Regulations in a properly regulated market, you will see several things that are positive, but particularly taking money away from drug dealers and putting it in the, in the hands of Scott, small business why would, why would only five of 40 state senators say they support this argument, given the fact that you seem to be making cogent arguments in the minds of some yeah. right now? Sure. The reality is, as we all grew up, thinking that cannabis was as bad as cocaine and heroin. You know, since the 1930s, it's been... It's a gateway drug, uh, some we, say. We've been told that many times, but we know factually that it's not a gateway drug. You we think know, that's a misconception? It is not a misconception. It was an out, outright lie that was put together by the Nixon administration when they put together the Controlled Substance Act. They made cannabis a Schedule One drug. The Nixon administration, without any medical background associated with it, made cannabis a Schedule One drug as bad as heroin. Cocaine, methamphetamine, is a Schedule Two. So by definition, crack cocaine is healthier for you than cannabis. Crack cocaine is less addictive for you than cannabis. Knowing that as the premise for all these things, we recognize the fact that there was no science behind there. 1971, Nixon administration, is not 19, or 2018. We have had several decades of research put into this, medical research scientists from in the United States, but mostly yeah. in Israel and other countries where they've actually done significant, incredible research to this, both as a medicine from an efficacy perspective, but also recognizing that you don't get addicted to this. It's not the gateway drug. In, in a time I've been real quick, Scott, the politics, dare I use that term, I mean, this is not a program that looks at horse race politics or campaign politics, but the politics of public policy. How much of this is about the politics of public policy and the perception on the part of some members of the legislature who are afraid of being labeled as sure. soft on drugs? Right. And, and there's a stigma that's, that's been around, again, for, for many, many decades, what, what, what the misconception of what cannabis is. And so we have to break through that stigma, and we do that with using facts. We use medical facts. We use data and statistics from other states. You know, there, there's been arguments about teenage use increasing and all these crime things and all these other sort of falsehoods. The reality is, you know, when we talk about teenage use, we, you know, more cannabis is being sold in the United States than ever before, ever before in our history. And we're actually... Two seconds left, go ahead. We have a, we're at a 20-year low in teenage use. In a well-regulated market with proper education and those resources going back into communities, we're actually seeing a very positive impact on our, in, in our state. Well, we see a positive impact on our state. Scott Red Armour, thank you for joining thank us you. on State of Affairs. And I also promise folks who wonder, hey, where's the balance here that we will have either Senator Vitale or someone else. Um, Senator Scutari has been leading this effort mm -hmm. with you and your colleagues for a long time. Someone who does not have the same view that Scott has in Senator, Senator Scutari, and you can decide for yourself. But the legislature is going to deal with this, and Governor Murphy is in favor of it. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. This is State of Affairs. We'll be right back right after this. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. Hi, I'm Steve Adubato coming to you from the North Ward Center, a community-based organization, a not-for-profit, um, where we're taping a series of interviews with some very talented, uh, committed leaders to urban education. And we're also doing a forum 
on the future of urban education in New Jersey and in the nation. We're pleased to be joined by Michelle Mason, Executive Director of the Newark Charter School Fund. Michelle, let me ask you, define a charter school. Thank you, Steve, for having me here today. I Great appreciate to it. Charter schools are free public schools that have allowed students to access a great education across here in, here in Newark and across the country. Okay, let's break this down a little yep. bit. But charter schools, while they are public, mm -hmm. do not function exactly the way, I mean, to fully disclose, yep. the Northwood Center has an organization connected to it, an independent entity called the Robert Treat Academy. I've known it well. My dad founded it. My sister, my older sister is uh, one of the leaders there, the principal. But here's the question. I know that they don't have the exact same rules as a traditional yeah. public school. What are the differences? The difference is that uh, the charter school has a little bit of autonomy to hire, fire teachers and actually meet the needs of students. So there's a little bit of freedom that the school leader has the opportunity to manage their budget. Um, they are, again, able to hire teachers that meet the needs of students. And so it gives a little bit of freedom for them to be a little bit more creative in, in than what is been historically traditional public schools. How are charter schools doing, not just in Newark, not just yeah. in New Jersey, but across the nation? Yeah, you know, charter schools are an option for parents. And here, particularly in Newark, Newark is the, the second highest performing charter school. Is it 40%? 40% of the students in public schools a go third to... Of students. A, a third of students. A third? A third of students. So over the last 10 years, the, the number of students who have parents who've chosen a charter school as an option has risen from about 10% to about 30% of students are... Why do you are, think that is? I think because what's most important is parents are choosing um, that the sector is a high-quality sector, which means that more and more students are reading and doing math on grade level, are graduating high school, and enrolling in, the, in college and being prepared for, for life success. And so, you know, here in urban communities, it's, it's most important that parents have an option or a choice because parents know best what is best for, for their kids. And, you know, I, I've, I've heard recently, like, you know, your zip code should not determine your destiny. Your, the block you live on should not you know, determine your blessings. And charters give parents an option in the city that, you know, the, the harsh reality is that we, 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 we we're making great progress here in Newark, but we still have some opportunity to make sure that every single student has access to a great school and charters presents an option for parents. But ch some charters have not done well. Yep. And, and so the question is, how is it that the state or how exactly does the government through the state government regulate, monitor the progress of charter schools? So when a charter comes into play, they have four years to you know, meet the needs of the, 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 the students and the families that they serve. And, and when they are not serving students, just like we've had last year, we, we are an active part in closing them. And so if a-, if a Your organization? Yes. By the way, describe, you don't regulate them, but they are members in yep. your organization. We have 19 um, charter, charter, um, charter uh, organizations across 46 different campuses. And some organizations have more than one charter school. Correct. Some are what we call charter management organizations that have multiple campuses, elementary, middle, and high school. And some, and here in Newark, we have a little bit of a 50-50 divide where you have schools like KIPP and Uncommon that have multiple campuses. And then you have small independent schools, which are you know driven by the community that might just be one K-8 or one elementary um, you know, K-5. But if a charter school isn't doing well, there is a process to yep. help improve. And ultimately, if it does not work over a period 
of time, yep. they've been shut down. They have been shut down. And, and for us, what's most important is every single student have access to a quality education, regardless if it's charter, mm. district, public magnet, we need to be focused on quality across the whole portfolio of options. And for me at the Charter School Fund, in our across our 46 campuses, if the school is not serving the needs of the students, meaning it's not a safe environment, mm. kids are reading and doing math on grade level, then it is our responsibility to make sure that that school is no longer operating and, and again, meet the needs of parents and make sure that they have access to a great school. By the way, Michelle mentioned uh, one of the types of schools were magnet schools, and we'll talk about that. I happen to live in a beautiful community, Montclair, New Jersey, that established the, one of the first magnet school systems within not just the state, but the nation, mm -hmm. where kids, in fact, go to certain schools that focus on certain academic areas, yeah. um, as opposed to simply neighborhood schools. Exactly. So let me ask you this. The state been involved, otherwise known as controlled, mm -hmm. the state public schools, excuse me, the public schools in New York for 20 years. It's changing yeah. as we speak. What do you hope for the future of the public school system in New York as quote unquote local control becomes the norm and yeah. not state control? You know, um, I think we should be really optimistic about the success of Newark public schools in the last 10 years. Again, more and more students are graduating. They're being prepared and going to and through college. And we even now have the, the, the charter sector and collaborating with the district is so strong now that it's, it's driving all, the, the, all students are, are getting better. It's not just charter, it's not just district. And I think what I hope for is that spirit of collaboration continues to, to um, happen because the reality is Newark is getting better Charters, districts have it working together. You mean test scores are getting better? Test scores are better. Slowly. Slowly, every, every single year, getting better. Gra the graduation rate is increasing. And, you know, I think that what's, I, I've worked in the charter schools. You know, there, there are a number of students. And I think what's so exciting about where we are now is we have students who have gone through charter schools. I can think of a student, Asia Manuel from North Star, who graduated North Star Charter North School. Star Academy here in, right. here in Newark, a Newark resident, mm. went to University of Pennsylvania, has come back, is now teaching here in Newark. Came back from came back an Ivy League school? An Ivy League school. To teach in Newark? Teach in Newark. I think of my uh, former student I work with, Shantaya King, who again at North Star, went to Kane University, it is now a social worker wow. back here. And so for me, that's what the promise of charter schools delivers is, you know, Newark residents, high expectations, um, allowing students to reach their dreams, go to college and come back because that is the hope. That is, you know, education moving forward. There's great momentum and synergy. Finally, 30 seconds. You're optimistic. I'm, I'm, because. I'm, I'm optimistic because I believe that the conditions are right where folks are focused on student outcomes. They're focused on collaboration and partnership. We are excited to work together because we believe in our kids. We believe in their dreams mm. and we're raising the bar. It, you know, it's, it's a harsh reality. Some schools are not great. We have to close them. We have to figure out, is it charter expansion? Is it closure? Is it co-location? But your you status quo, not an option. It is not an option. You know, they say insanity is, you know, trying to do the same thing over and over again. Expecting, expecting different, different outcomes. Exactly. <laughs> And so we have to we have to be bold, we have to be patient, but we also have to be urgent. Michelle Mason is the executive director of the New York Charter School Fund. I want to thank you so much for being a part of our um, 
Urban Education Forum. We're looking at urban education across the state, this nation, and I look forward to our conversation with the larger group. Thank you so much, Thank Michelle. Thank you much. Well done. Be right back. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. Paul Boudreau is president of the Morris County Chamber of Commerce. Commerce, good to see you, my friend. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. You're one of the most significant, largest chambers in the state. We've been fortunate. You know, we have a lot of great companies in Morris County. Um, we've taken the organization from about 600 members to 900 over the last seven or eight years. So it's a good place to be. Yeah, I remember speaking in front of your group a couple of years back, and the audience that you gather um, also, should say I met my wife Jennifer when she was working for the Morris County Chamber yeah, as a speaker yeah. back in the day. Yeah. So I have a little history of your organization. The point I'm raising is that the diversity of your audience, the business owners, is striking to me in the kinds of questions they ask. What are they saying about the Murphy administration and its quote-unquote business agenda? Trust me, well, I have a point here. <laughs> well, you know, look, it, it's been two months, right? The governor's We're taking been, in, the in the spring of 2018. Go ahead. The governor uh, is, uh, you know, just come to office, and um, I think we've got to give him some time. He's been pretty consistent, right, during the campaign. He talked about uh, we need to have a fairer economy, as he called it. Would we a millionaire's to, tax be good for most of will, your uh, members? We have always been opposed to the millionaire's tax. I testified a couple of times in Trenton in the last five What's years. What's wrong with it? On the we believe it moves more people to make a decision to leave the state. And if I talk to my large CPA firms, those kind of folks, and I ask them, you know, what do your people spend most of their time on over the years in New Jersey? Unfortunately, the answer to that is, helping people get out of the state. But Paul, the governor says, and others say, we need those revenues to pay for a whole range of programs, including the fact that you got to pay for the pension crisis with public employees. Well, you know, if you look at government, federal or state level, uh, in terms of the kinds of actions they've taken over the last, say, 20 or 30 years, if you look at the private sector, so many companies have changed their organizations, re readjusted their situations in terms of their global footprint, made a lot of decisions over the years to be more efficient, to find out where they can save money. All of that's been going on consistently for 30 years you with call the that private sector. No, I'm not, no, I have, no, I'm just saying, what have companies done in the private sector okay. to be more efficient, as opposed to them saying, well, gee, we have to raise, raise prices on our customers. They have found ways to be more efficient stay in the game, be more competitive, whereas government says, oh, I just want more money. Just give me more money. i got more things to do, yeah. right? And so, you know, you've got to take a look at your whole operation and see where you can save some money. Father, what is out-migration? What are we talking about? People who have left the state, and you've seen the NJBIA study. Business I think the, and yeah, the bill, yeah. yeah the, I think the number they cited was $80 billion or $90 billion over the last decade of uh, out-migration in terms of wealth. And so, I mean, I have friends in Basking Ridge who were successful people in New Jersey for years who still have a home in Basking Ridge and they're paying, obviously, property taxes. But for years, those people were paying huge income taxes to the mm. state of New Jersey. Today, they're in Florida for 182 days. 
paying zero to the state of Which New makes Jersey. them legal residents right? of Florida. Exactly. But and these same folks, a lot, I imagine a fair number of folks, uh, members of the Marsh County Chamber, were supportive of candidate Trump before he was President Trump. I imagine a fair number. Yeah, I would Well, I know he got a lot I, of votes in Morris County. I know that. It's, yeah, absolutely. There, I'm going somewhere with this. I mean, he uh, obviously there uh, there was lots of concern about the uh, the candidate on the other side in 2018. Well, I'm going to move past the campaign. Yeah, Trust I'm, me. There's a reason yeah. I'm bringing it up yeah. because the Trump tax policy, while it reduced the rate on the corporate side from 35 to 21 percent, I'm sure they like that. Yeah. But how many of your members are sitting there saying, wow, New Jersey, highest property taxes in the nation, we're only going to be able to deduct 10 grand, not a penny more, uh, of our state and local taxes? Did some of your folks, a significant number, say, hey, wait a minute, that's not what we voted for? Well, look, I mean, obviously the tax cut uh, favored companies, not individuals. I don't think anybody in New Jersey is happy about having a $10,000 deduction. Could we lose people go back to out migration because you can't deduct your local property taxes to the degree they used to? Well, first let's understand what the total impact of their okay. tax bill is. And I don't know. Like this, know. you mean like balance it Yeah, out. I mean, so obviously there were changes made on the individual side of the tax code. Um, all of this talk about, oh, people are moving out of New Jersey because of the Trump tax plan as it relates to deduction of property taxes. I don't believe it. You don't see it? I don't see it. Um, I've got a situation right now in, in, where I, in the town that I live in, and realtors are telling me the market's hot, people are buying properties. This has not hurt the real estate. Hasn't hurt people the, said the home values would drop 15, 20 percent. Look, if you want to educate your children in a great school system in New Jersey, and if, and, and if you look at the relative pricing of, you know, my, two of my sons live in Hoboken. Not cheap. I mean, you can buy an apartment in Hoboken easily for a million bucks, right? There are plenty of them. Right. And you can get a really nice house in the suburbs for a million bucks where you can educate your kids if you want to be in the suburbs. So I'm not a believer in, you know, I'm going to make a decision that I'm not going to be in a great community in New Jersey because of Trump's tax bill, when in fact the most important things to me as a family is I have to have a great place for my family and I have to have great education for my kids. So I don't think people are making a decision. I'm leaving the state based just on that. No, no, never just on one thing. But, but right. at the same time, and obviously I'm playing devil's advocate, Paul, but you do say that, that Murphy, Governor Murphy's policies around business and tax policy could have an impact. But the federal policies and taxes won't. I just want to know. that. On the personal side, Got I don't think the Trump tax thing is going is to run on the people business out of side? New Jersey. On the business side, it's great. It's, I mean, in my county, I've got, you know, I've got 40, Pharmaceuticals are doing I've great. Got 40 multi-billion dollar companies in the chamber in Morris County who are global companies who love the track, the Trump tax plan. And they want to see what Governor Murphy's business plan Absolutely. is, the tax policy plan. Absolutely. So I sat in meetings for the last year in Trenton with my peers, and we talked about what does the post-Christie world look like? A few seconds like, left. Go ahead. Right? What does the post-Christie world look like? And if we have one party control in Trenton, are we going to be in trouble in terms of a millionaire's tax, those kinds of things? Interesting to see now what's happening with the We are going discussion. to find out. Paul Boudreau right. is the uh, president of the Morris County Chamber of Commerce. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, Steve. Well done. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you. Okay. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation, celebrating over 25 years of broadcast excellence. 
State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at 2 Gateway. Funding has been provided by the Northward Center, NJ Best, St. Joseph's Health, Seton Hall University, NJM Insurance Group, New Jersey Sharing Network, and by the New Jersey Office of the Insurance Fraud Prosecutor. Promotional support provided by New Jersey Monthly, the magazine of the Garden State, available at newsstands. And by Jaffe Communications, where business, media, and government converge in New Jersey. Autism is one of the fastest growing developmental disorders in the U.S. Here in New Jersey, one in every 41 children is diagnosed with autism. And when a child is diagnosed with autism, every member of the family is affected. While there currently is no cure for autism, early detection and intervention can offer critical improvements for the child and tremendous benefits for the family. To learn more about autism, contact the Binder Autism Center at St. Joseph's Children's Hospital.